This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle, and this week, uh, Emily is out. She has a shindig, I believe, with her... uh, uh, high school class college class she's out and so this week we have a guest host and that is adam levin and uh he has a particular claim to fame in jeopardy history so uh i'm gonna let him introduce himself and talk about that a little bit thanks kyle appreciate your you're having me fill in for emily yeah so i was a contestant back in 2019 during the run of one james holzhauer and uh in my one and only appearance. I finished with the highest total in Jeopardy history to not win a game, $53,999. So, um, you know, I like to say I'm, I'm the biggest loser because I only came away with 2000 for my efforts. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I remember that happening. I remember watching that and being like, oh, ooh, ooh that's got a sting. Yeah. I mean, it was... It was a wonderful experience, I, you know. As as I'm sure everybody who's been on the show will tell you that, that being on Jeopardy is is the you know the experience, <clears throat> excuse me, of a lifetime, whether they win or not. And you know, I can say that I went out there and and played my best possible game, even though I didn't, you know, come out on the right end of the the scoreboard. You know, I went out and you know, not everybody can win every game and. You know, all, all I all I could do is was go out and do the best I did and and tip my cap to the the guy who did win. Yeah, and I think that's a good way to approach it. I mean, because everybody loses, right? Every single person who has been on Jeopardy, except for the current reigning champion, like has lost, and it's likely that the current reigning champion has also lost. Just given you know statistics, everybody loses, whether it's your first one or your fortieth one. It's going to happen, and it's good to have that attitude. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to have you here. Uh, obviously, you know your stuff. <laughs> as I mean, as everyone like does who gets so, on the yeah. show. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you don't you don't rack up that kind of a score uh, just kind of guessing. I find even now watching, I don't know if I know as much stuff as I did three years ago. I think I'm I'm you know probably a little bit slower on the would be a little bit slower on the buzzer and. Stuff that I feel like came to me then isn't coming as quickly now, but uh, sure. I also don't have the adrenaline rush that I had <laughs> stepping onto that, the the Alex Trebek stage. Yeah, that I mean that that is something for sure. Because uh, even I, I mean thinking back, I, I remember there were some guesses that I took that even on my couch I'm not sure I would have taken, but I was just like in and going for it because you're you're on the stage, you want to get there. You have you your brain says it might be this, and you're like, oh, let's go for it. Pull the trigger. All right, so we have had a week of Jeopardy, and uh, what an interesting, what an interesting week it was. That started with Monday, May thirtieth, when we had the contestants Steve Knapp, a middle school teacher from San Ramon, California; Mandy Walker, an account tech from Mount Juliet, Tennessee; and Ryan Long, a rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, whose eleven-day cash winnings. Total $209,300. And we had the Jeopardy round categories, the Midwest, 
punny mystery titles, In the Sports Hall of Fame, Potpourri, On the Wall, and Verb plus ER equals Noun. That was a weird one. That was a weird one, mostly because all of the, for me, for the the correct responses, I didn't need the verb part. Right. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the $200 clue, the Brits call this medical device a Zimmer frame. That's a walker. They showed a picture. It's just a walker. I don't even think, like, yeah, I guess it helps you walk. I think about that. Like an auxiliary rocket or a vaccination recharge. That's a booster. I guess it boosts. I, you right, know, it, like, yeah. of course it does. It has the thing in it, but I never, I just think of the noun. So, right. And the, uh, I, I like the, the punny mystery titles on this one too. I, I feel like watching it, uh, I, I remember, uh, seeing Ryan roll his eyes quite a few times, <laughs> whether he answered or whether it was upon hearing the answer. And yet mm-hmm. he went back to it. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if he actually doesn't like puns or if he secretly likes puns, but right. he like pretends not to. That it struck me as that's just his pun reaction, right? He doesn't mm-hmm. seem to show a lot of emotion out there. So like rolling his eyes at a pun is probably his way of acknowledging that, yeah, okay, that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those were those are fun. A little bit tough. There was one triple stumper there that I didn't like. The uh, the eight hundred dollar clue, the Irish stewed one. Titles in this in the ethnic eats mystery series include Italian iced, French fried, and Irish this. I don't think just Irish stew is just not like an iconic meal, an iconic food that I think of immediately. The mm-hmm. same way, if you said Italian, I think ice would come to mind, and same with French fried. Irish stew didn't like resonate right. with me the way some of those other clues did. I had the same feeling, but I was like, but I, I just, whenever I have that feeling, I just like, oh, I guess that's something I don't know and everyone else does. Right. But Mandy guessed what is creamed, and that made a lot more sense to me. Yeah. And also feels like it could still fit the category. Right. Exactly. It's one where you so. had to think of what are they, what are the clue writers thinking of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And when you have to guess what they're thinking, I don't think it's a great clue. But again, for all the writers who listen to our show, we love you and you're doing a great job. <laughs> When there's a one good minute. one, we'll let you know that too. <laughs> yeah, there was another one they missed the uh, that I was disappointed I, as I have the uh, the Stanley Cup Finals in the background there the the six hundred dollars on the Midwest in two thousand. This Ohio City welcomed an NHL franchise and Columbus, the Blue Jackets. I was mm-hmm. disappointed that nobody gave that one a whirl. I feel like even if you didn't know it was Columbus. You kind of only really have three choices, right? It's like Cincinnati or Cleveland or Columbus. Mm-hmm. So maybe you take a shot at one of them. Yeah, that's interesting. Like I, I, I went to Columbus, but I'm also I also live in you know Avalanche territory. So the oh, hockey okay. is <laughs> ho- we pay more attention to hockey here than maybe most of the other parts of the country. Sure. Uh, speaking of go Avs, but yeah, I, I thought I thought that was that was interesting that nobody went for it. I, I thought like. Of one of the things to study before you get on Jeopardy, just know your like your your big four, right? Uh, teams you like don't you don't even necessarily have to know anything about them. Just like know the city and the na- team name. Do you want to talk about the daily double? Sure. The next clue down uh, was picked a couple later, but the eight hundred dollar clue in the Midwest, uh, Fort Wayne is home of, to the grave of this legendary orchard planter, and Ryan only wagered a thousand for Johnny Appleseed. I think uh, 
and as the uh, the J archive tells us, Ryan said, "I have no faith in myself." Um, you know, which we, we see sort of his daily doubles wagers wait uh, don't go over three thousand or lower than one thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like Mateo Roach did the same thing. Yeah. Always bet too little. Right. Regular listeners of the podcast know that our firm belief is if you find the daily double in the Jeopardy round, you should go all in or the maximum, depending on whether you have a thousand or not. Just bet it all. You know, I think something, you know, and that was, you know, a strategy that I don't know whether how prevalent it was prior to James, but certainly he's the one I think that really put it to its fullest potential in the in this current era of, of super champions that we're in. For sure. Do you want to introduce Double Jeopardy? Sure. <clears throat> the categories there were female presidents, stick to the scripture, 18th century culture club, the animal in its logo, TV theme songs, and portmanteau words. I like the portmanteau category. Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a wordplay category without without trying to force things the way mm-hmm. that maybe that that verb plus er equals noun one right was. yeah it's not as like kind of not niche but like weirdly specific or it, there's not a gimmick to it it's just like this just let's talk about some some fun words yeah exactly and i did learn finally what retcon is short for at the two thousand dollar level uh to retcon is to go back and fill in a fictional character's history and comes from these two words of four and five syllables. Ryan got that. That's retroactive continuity. That was a really good get by him. That was a very good get. And he, he and ran that category. He did. He he ran a number of categories this week. Right. He, uh, he turned it on. A couple of tough daily doubles on this mm-hmm. one. Yeah, the second daily double comes up as only the third pick in the round. It's in the animal in its logo category. And the, the clue is paperback publisher pocket books. And uh, Ryan guesses what is a penguin, which is a penguin is a publisher. Right. But uh, the animal in pocket books is a kangaroo. At home, I, I started to say penguin and then caught myself and changed it, remembering that penguin was its own imprint mm-hmm. and thinking pocket. Well, that's probably kangaroo. So Ryan lost his his maximum wager of 3000 uh, no, he it wasn't really his maximum, but it's as much as he normally yeah, wages. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, Ryan's, the, the top of his Ryan's range. maximum. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I think here we saw Mandy try to get back in the game with this, the third daily double in the 18th century culture club at the $1,600. Um, was uh, She bet 5000 on he composed some famous music for a 1717 royal boat trip down the Thames. And after... Much thinking, Mandy said, Strauss, who is Strauss? The correct answer was Handel, George Friedrich Handel, which I presume that that piece of music is water music. Yes, it is. That is a, that is a good presumption. <laughs> that's, I feel like that's a, if you don't know that one, it's a tough leap to make. Right, because you're going to try to think of English names. Although she went with Strauss, probably because it has a river. Right. And he's known for the Blue Danube. But, right, um, exactly. But yeah. And that was where my head went. Even though it says in the Thames, Blue Danube mm-hmm. was what, and I couldn't think of even Strauss, sure. Strauss if we're being honest. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, 
So yeah, Mandy makes goes for a big move, but it doesn't work out. Uh, so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Ryan is in a lock position at eighteen thousand. Uh, Mandy's gotten herself to back to forty eight hundred, and Steve is at eighty four hundred. Uh, we have the final Jeopardy category in memoriam twenty twenty two, and the clue on the death of this trailblazing man, friend and mentor, Oprah said, "For me, the greatest of the great trees has fallen." Mandy and Steve both both went a uh, little down a different path. Uh, they both guessed who is Lewis, John Lewis, which is a, a fair guess. Mandy wagered 4,800 and dropped zero. Steve wagered 2,000. Uh, and Ryan guessed who is Donahue, and apparently Phil Donahue is still alive, so <laughs> yikes. <laughs> but he only wagered 1,000, not risking his luck, and so that means Ryan wins his 12th game. Yeah, I have to be honest. I went in the same direction as as Mandy and Steve, and just sort of didn't like once that name snapped into my head, uh, there was nothing that was going to shake it loose. Um, but yeah, and reading it again, uh, the mentor piece, I think, is where I, did, did we say that the correct answer is, is Sydney? Oh, sorry, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't say the correct answer. Yeah, it's Sydney Poitier, which was a, a, a so it was a triple stumper. Yes, right. Yeah, I did not get to I did not get to Poitier either. I I really didn't settle on a name. I was like, good thing I'm not on stage. Yeah, to me, it's it's sort of part of it. I feel like is it's the the time flattening of of the COVID era because mm-hmm. it's in memoriam 2022 and John Lewis died in 2020, so two full years ago that he passed away. Yeah, but it's so it's hard to keep things in in that perspective. Yeah, when they said John Lewis, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, that could be it. And it was wrong. And I was like, oh, never mind. It doesn't make sense. It's not it. (laughs) All right. So Tuesday's game featured uh, Carissa Farugi. I apologize if I butchered that. An architect from Falls Church, Virginia. Kenny Liu, a software engineer originally from Los Angeles, California. And for his in his 12th game with cash winnings of 226,300. Ryan Long, a rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And the categories for the Jeopardy round were word puzzles, mayors, book of the year, wood, send a letter, and musicians selling music. I love the uh, the word puzzles category here. I felt like Ryan seemed to... Yeah, I feel like he had a similar type category last week, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I, I agree. There, whether it was this week or, or the week before, I don't quite remember. But there was another like visual representation of the correct answer right. that I had to figure out. But yeah, Ryan did pretty well with them. And that was, yeah, that was a fun category. I like the things that change it up a little bit. Right, it's it's fun. Uh, Ryan also ran the musician selling music category. He is extremely strong in the pop culture, music, TV, movies. Yeah, he he is dominant in those categories for sure uh we had a reversal at the thousand dollar level of send a letter the clue was a letter of mark was a government grant to a private individual to engage in naval operations otherwise considered this carissa responded with what is privateering and that was accepted but after the commercial break that was reversed because they were looking for piracy privateering was granted for things that would otherwise be piracy. So I'm sorry. So what? Explain that again. So a, a letter of mark allows someone to do 
basically piracy, but right. make it legal. And so they call that privateering. Privateering is what has happened once you've gotten the letter of right. mark. Got right. It. You're doing the exact same thing that pirates do, but the government is telling you to do it for them. So it's not piracy. Got it's it. privateering. Got it. Yes. Yes. Which I believe Francis Drake was a privateer for a while. Okay. Uh, the book of the year category was a tough one for them. They, they went through it early, mm-hmm. but uh, three out of five triple stumpers. It didn't didn't terribly surprise me. Like I, I'm not the strongest in literature, but the eight hundred and thousand dollar level, I don't think I've ever heard of. Yeah, summer of forty two is one. I th- I feel like when you think there are two summers that I think of, summer of sixty nine, from the <laughs> mm-hmm. the song, sort of right. pop culture wise, and then I think from a sports standpoint, the summer of forty six is one that that has been sort of mythologized um, because you had Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak and Ted Williams being the last 400 hitter that season. Mm -hmm. And so baseball writers um, kind of mythologize that season. And so I think I went towards, was thinking the 46, and I don't know if I would have gotten to the 42 piece of it. I mean, that would have been a lot closer than I'd have got. Right. I could only think of summer of 69, and I was right. like, I don't, I don't think that's it. Right. doesn't sound like the same thing. Right. And disappointingly, they missed the $400 question on mares. Its mares have included Josiah Quincy, a ranger of a certain market. That's my hometown of Boston. Or I should say, yeah, no, it's my hometown. I live, I live here now, but I'm... I'm I, I'm a I'm a big supporter of Ryan because I'm originally from Philadelphia. So, mm. right underneath that was the the Daily Double, uh, that was at the 600 level for mayors, and he he opposed speculation, gentrification, and loud college parties as mayor of Burlington, Vermont, from 1981 to 1989. And you can just imagine him sitting there with his hands and legs crossed in his cold in his cold suit at the, mm-hmm. at the inauguration, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, Ryan and converted that for two thousand. Yeah, that was that was that's speculation, gentrification, and loud co- loud college parties. I definitely put all <laughs> of those things on the same level. Right. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ryan is at ninety six hundred. Kenny's at sixteen hundred. Chris is at negative six hundred. Uh, we get the double Jeopardy categories: medieval times, it only borders one country, science, it's a flat out fact. SNL cast members on film and going pro PRO in quotation marks. Uh, Ryan ran a couple more here. Mm -hmm. Like you said, he's strong on the pop culture. So the SNL cast members on film, he nailed that one. Yes, he did. Medieval times, which I would have dreaded seeing. uh, History is not one of my stronger suits. Hmm. I actually did know all of them, although, I mean, the year and a day, they gave it to you in French. So the $1,200 clue was a serf who could hide out in a town for this long, un an et un jour, in French, I'm so bad at French, uh, became a free citizen, that's a year and a day. That was a common medieval, like, law thing, was a year and a day. Okay. Just because, um, which technically, as we would think of it now... Just a little bit of a side. We would think of it as just one year. In their minds, to get to the same day of the next year is a year and a day. Sure. 
but to us if we say a year from today we would mean you know right june 3rd 2023 to them that would be a year and a day right makes sense that's one I would have gotten from knowing the French, not from knowing anything else right. about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If you if you can figure out the French, you don't need to know the rest of it. We get the second daily double in that uh, category. It's the next one down, the $1,600 clue. The clue is in 1279, these invaders ended China's Song Dynasty. And Ryan found this. He wagered another 2000 and he got it correct with who are the Mongols. It's a recent Learned League question, if I recall. I think it is, yeah. And also a couple months back, we had a uh, Anna Key Garcia was a guest host, and she talked about the Chinese dynasties. So okay, she mentioned that too. We did well in the science categories too. Yeah, Ryan just had a very strong game. <laughs> just overall, he he was extremely dominant this game. I think you know, to me, it's always sort of his his domination is always really quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was up by eight thousand dollars at the end of the jeopardy round you know without sort of being flashy in any way shape or form about it but yeah yeah he just he's just solid and quiet and consistent yeah yeah the second daily double the third daily double of the game uh looks like it was in it only borders one country the 1200 level technically an ecclesiastical state it's found west of the tiber and carissa got it for twelve hundred dollars and it was the Vatican City. I guess that's one where you and I talked a little bit about the daily double wagering before we started recording, where you're far behind. You know you have to do something to catch up. And maybe at that point, I'm sure at that stage of the game, there wasn't much you could do to catch up anyway. But frustrating to see someone only wager the amount of the clue. Yeah, that's one thing really that you should pretty much always avoid if anybody who's listening who think who might be getting on the show don't wager the value of the clue because if it's an 800 hundred dollar clue it's going to be easier so you should be betting more and if it's a two thousand dollar clue and you feel bad about the category if anything you should wager less because it's going to be harder don't do the value of the clue anyway the final jeopardy category so going in uh again ryan had another lock game at twenty eight thousand four hundred. kenny was in second place at sixty eight hundred and Carissa at 4,200. Uh, novel quotes was the category, and it was referring to the book's title. This character says, I know it's a poem by Robert Burns. Carissa wagered 4,100, almost all in there, and said, who is Emma, which was incorrect. Kenny was next, wagered 1601, and he came up with the correct answer, who is Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye. And Ryan with a lock game, only wagered 2,000, and presumably had no idea whatsoever because he answered Ted Cruz, who I would be surprised if he knew anything was a Robert Burns poem. Yeah. Uh, No, Ryan tweeted out after that that he had no clue, and so he put the most absurd name he could think of, which I agree. Yes. Ted Cruz is absurd. Right. (laughs) So yeah, that that is Holden Caulfield. I immediately and without any other, without second thought, went to uh, uh, George from Of Mice and Men because Of Mice and Men is a Robert Burns poem. Okay, and so I was like, oh, I know that's a Robert Burns poem. So it's like it's either Lenny or George, and which one do I think it is? What I trying to remember which one was the like right? Which one didn't spoilers die at the end? 
<laughs> so it's like that's the only thing I think of. I didn't even give a chance to go to Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, to me, just the 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 way that it's written, and maybe it was the way Mayim said it. It sounds like something that Holden Caulfield would say. It sounds like kind of a snotty know-it-all. Mm-hmm. I know it's a uh, I know it's a poem by Robert Burns, and that's all I know about it, and that's all I care about it. It yeah, no, it makes sense for sure. I don't remember that line. I remember thinking Holden Caulfield was the terrible character. I did not like Catcher in the Rye. It's far enough ago that I don't. I think I did like it when I was that young. Mm-hmm. But I haven't read it since I was probably in high school, so I don't know that it that it would hold up. I wonder if it's something that they even still teach. You might have a better idea than I. Well, our school at the end of every year they kind of purge the the closets of the like class sets of books that haven't been used in a while. Okay. And Catcher in the Rye was in one of the big tote bins that was okay. in the library for people <laughs> to take if they wanted to copy. Uh, so at one point we did teach it in the last ten or fifteen years, but okay. I, I don't know. I don't I don't think any of my students had to read it this year. Yeah. It seems like an easy one that to be dropped for something, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, a, a quote unquote canon book that that could easily be dropped for for something more diverse. More yeah, more diverse, more relevant, more Right. It's a fine piece of literature that can be, you know, in in the history of literature and that's that's fine. Right. Uh, all right, so uh, Ryan wins. Moving on to Wednesday, when we have the contestants Megan Morrow, a real estate manager from Portland, Oregon; Vanessa Williams, an assistant dean from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania; and Ryan Long, whose thirteen-day total is now two hundred fifty-two thousand seven hundred dollars. I believe this is the second time that uh, he's faced another uh, Philadelphian. I believe that is correct. They apparently the pool. Just the randomization kind of just pulled in a bunch of people from Philadelphia. So, cool. Good for Philly. Um, we got to have something right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not going to... Not going to rag on Philly. I know a lot of people like to rag on Philly. I think it's a fine city. Uh, we have the Jeopardy round categories. Picture the novel. Oh, this was the other picture one. There you go. Here we go. Uh, U.S. government history. It's a sin. S-Y-N in quotation marks. Coffee Break, Ballpark Fun, and Dr. Mitten's Cat <laughs> Obstetrician. That was so weird. We I, I, I hadn't watched the episode yet, and I saw the fake Jeopardy stories on Twitter tweet out that category <laughs> title. And like he said, this is a real category on Jeopardy today. And I was like, no, that has to be a joke. It's a multi-layer joke. The, he's making a joke about it being real. And show like he he photoshopped this or something, but no, he was not joking. I feel like that's this is one, and 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 Ryan has been starting on the four hundred dollar row as mm-hmm. opposed to two hundred. I feel mm-hmm. like this is one where I would definitely want to start at the top to get a really easy one to know what the heck is going on. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. If you're if it if there's a gimmick and you're not sure about it, start at the two hundred dollar and work your way down because that's how they want you to do it. But yeah, but. <laughs> That was a weird category. <laughs> it was fun though. It was. It certainly was surprising and enjoyable. I'm gonna ask a very uh, probably dumb question. Did you do well in the ballpark category? I did do well in the ballpark <laughs> one. That was. I, it was one where I was really interested to see if there was something Philadelphia related and who and the fact that uh, that that the four hundred dollar clue was in an unexpected crossover 
the green fanatic supporting this team since 1978 has a kid's book with a Galapagos gang of animals. Of course, it's the Philadelphia Phillies, the fanatic. And, uh, and Vanessa got in on that one. And I think you could hear a little bit of a, a frustrated uh, noise come from Ryan's microphone on that one and being beaten to it. Uh-huh. I, I can sympathize in that the two sports idiom questions in my game were both gotten by James. I, I always thought going in that if I got a sports category, gosh, that's one place where I might have an advantage over, you know, with all due respect, your typical, your Jeopardy typical player. Jeopardy can, uh, yes. contestant, only to be to be matched up against a uh, uh, someone who has probably as much, if not more, sports knowledge than I do. Right. Yeah. He 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 certainly had that cornered. I had the same feeling when I was not the one to get in for like classical music. I was like, I I have to know this better than any than, than right. most other people get on, and right. then other people would just get in first and know the answer. I'm like, oh, it's supposed to be mine. Right. If if you had told me going in to the day that I would have one television category and one movie category, one in each round, and I would not get a single one of those a clue in those two categories, I would tell you. I had the worst trivia day of my life and got mm-hmm. absolutely whacked because I'm I'm generally pretty strong in those. But, you know, came up with against two players who are even stronger and, and who beat me to the buzzer each time. Yeah. You know, and then on the flip side, if you'd have told me I would have gotten two clues in uh, uh, the Spanish Civil War, I would have told you <laughs> you're out of your gourd. <laughs> yeah. Because I think I can tell you the two things that I answered correctly about the Spanish Civil War. Those were about the two things that I that I knew. That you know. Yeah. It's weird how that happens, too. Yeah, no, I had the same. I almost, uh, oh, man, I was so close to running a, a football category in one of my episodes. And, like, I know some sports stuff, but it's one of my weakest areas. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to know, like, oh, I know all these players. It was like, who, you know, what team did these players go to the Hall of Fame for? So I was like, I just happened to know all the players. And then I missed the $1,000 one because I was just a split second too late. But at least I got to got to get my, my Broncos in there. Anyway, right. we've talked about this for quite a while. Uh, so at the the $600 level, twenty at the 22nd clue. So only eight more to go in this round. Uh, Ryan hit on it. And traditionally, home fans of this AL East, AL East team give particular emphasis to yelling, oh, during the national anthem. Ryan... Again, only wagered a thousand on it, but correctly identified the Baltimore Orioles. And uh, I have to say, while I'm no fan of the Orioles, that is a tradition that I really love, and love how the whole stadium is ready and waiting for it, whether they're singing along to the rest of it or not. The the O shout at, at Camden Yards is is something cool. That is cool. Uh, so let's see. At the at the end of the round, we have uh, a really tight game. For the first time in a while, Megan is in the lead with 5,000 and Ryan and Vanessa are tied at 3,800. So I believe uh, Ryan got to even pick first. Mm-hmm. Um, and the categories were bodies of water, pop and rock life stories, Nobel Peace Prize winners, 9, 10 and 11 letter words. That's one category. What a tool and life in the Faust lane. Ryan ran the Faust category. Imagine just having knowledge of Faust. Right. In in like into that level. That's where he started. He must have felt pretty good about yeah, it. Yeah, right. 
So yeah, and and then he ran that category, and actually we get the we get the second daily double in that category. It's pick number three, so he finds it at the sixteen hundred dollar level. The clue is roll up, roll up for the history tour. The tragical history of Doctor Faustus is a play by this Shakespeare era man, and Ryan immediately says who is Marlowe because if you're going to name a play of a non-Shakespeare person in Shakespeare's time, it's going to be Marlowe. And he wagered 2000 on it, but then he continued to, to take the rest of the category. So he he had been tied for last place. Right. Five clues later, he is in a dominant lead. <laughs> right. That's what one category will do for you. One triple stumper in this one that I was disappointed they didn't get. The 2,000-level clue in 9, 10, and 11-letter words, which might have been a little confusing from the German and Yiddish. It's the act of offering unsolicited advice to someone who's playing a game, Uh, the answer being kibitzing. Um, I love words of Yiddish derivation Mm -hmm. made into English. I wonder if just because they were looking for the the gerund version, Mm -hmm. then maybe that, uh, that threw them off a little bit. Right, if you came up with kibitz, but you counted it out. Right. It doesn't fit the category. Right. That's possible. I think I would have said kibitz and then hopefully added the ing in yeah. the amount of time it took her to uh, hopefully before she uh, she, she negged me. Incur- yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. The, uh, the last daily double of the game came not too long after the first one, the 10th pick. Um, and Megan got it this time in Bodies of Water. When not hampered by monsoons, the Dow was the traditional trading vessel of this ocean. And the answer is the Indian Ocean, which I feel like was fitting for an $800 clue. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty evident, but it's high up there on the board. Yeah, so she got it right. She moved up by 3000 which was a good move because at that particular moment is when she took the lead from Ryan. Ryan had a couple of big misses after that. And so going into final Jeopardy, Ryan's in second place. He's at 15,400. Megan uh, has maintained her lead. She's at 16,800. And Vanessa's back at 2,200. Uh, the final Jeopardy category is the early 19th century. In the clue, Admiral Pierre-Charles Villeneuve signaled engage the enemy around noon and surrendered at 1.45 p.m. during this battle. Uh, and all three of them made the same error in recognizing that it was a French name at the in the early twentieth or early nineteenth century, uh, but not looking at Admiral, uh, they all said, "What is Waterloo?" And Waterloo is a is a is a place on land, so an admiral would not be doing much. Uh, Vanessa bet it all, went to zero. Ryan wagered eight thousand, which dropped him down to seventy four hundred. That was a Smart move for a couple of reasons. One, kept him above Vanessa's double up by quite a bit, but also accounted for Megan, who did not make a cover bet, but she wagered 10,000, which is fairly big, you know. So she dropped down to 6,800. Ryan remains the champion with a with a pretty good bet. Pretty good wager there. Yeah. And the correct answer is the Battle of Trafalgar, Lord Nelson's decisive victory against the Napoleonic fleet. Was the first was the first thought out of my mind, but I think I would have ended up writing Waterloo for some reason. Mm. Just I mean, because Waterloo is the it's the big one, right? Right. It's, exactly. And if you're and if you're on the stage and you're like, 
is it Trafalgar? Is it Waterloo? I have to pick one and it's Jeopardy. Do I go for the, the, the more obvious one? Right. Probably. Yeah. Right. So Thursday's game featured Tom Philippos, a writing professor from Forest Hills, New York. Maya Sudarsana, a customer success manager from Boston, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And 14-day winner with $260,100, Ryan Long, once again, a rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. First round of categories in Jeopardy, we had Thank You for Your Service, The Pacific Ocean, Nuggets of Information, Let's Play a Game, What Breed of Movie Dog, and Come In. I think this was the the kind of board they were hoping had been picked on Monday, which was Memorial Day. But thank you for yeah. your service. Yeah, I was I was surprised that that category did not make it on the that that we saw it on Thursday instead of Monday. I don't know if that was an oversight or if if this just happens to be a category that was in the database and it just so happened to get pulled this week. Right. Yeah. Oh, you know what the one which I again was a good get by by Ryan, and this is again where he's uh his pop culture and the thousand dollars for uh, thank you for your service. The among the most decorated soldiers of World War II, he played himself in the 1955 movie To Helen Back, and they showed a, fo- a photo of Audie Murphy, who's there was a name that was on the tip of my tongue, couldn't come up but with. So I thought that was a that was a good poll for sure. Yeah, uh, Daily Double number one is in the Pacific Ocean category at the eight hundred dollar level. It's pick number nineteen, and Tom finds it. Tom and Ryan have been uh, kind of keeping close to each other. Uh, Tom has maintained a, a slight lead, and uh, he wagers a thousand again. I I would take this opportunity. You're this is a Thursday game. You've at least watched Ryan for three days. You know that he is winning, and whether however you feel about your game, bet it all. Give yourself the biggest lead possible here, because there's lots of money left on the board anyway. You're already doing well. You can catch up if you need to. Yeah. He has a clue. Like a super one that hit the region in 2018, a hurricane in the West Pacific is called this, related to Chinese for big wind. And he gets it right with, what is a typhoon? Yeah. I thought that was relatively easy for an $800 clue. And again, you know, it's Jeopardy round. It's going to be easier. And just bet it all. Just go for it, man. (laughs) Just go for it. Going into Double Jeopardy, Ryan is up to 8,600. Tom is at 8,800. Maya's back at negative 200. We have the Double Jeopardy categories. Theater, yield E category with E in quotation marks. USA, a short goodbye, six drugs, and rock and roll. (laughs) Another good one. Kudos to the writers on that. Yeah. Yes, that one was very good. And uh, Maya started in the six drugs category, which... uh, She's a customer success manager. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know what that says. Right. I'm I'm gonna let that let that be. I think it's a testament to Tom's strength and and probably speed on the buzzer that he and Ryan split the rock and roll category. Right. Uh, they they kind of went back and forth on it rather than Ryan just running it as I would have assumed he would. Right. So the first daily double in six drugs on the six clue went to Maya. Uh, used to reduce the formation of clots, Coumadin is a brand of this, also called blood thinner. And my guess, what is a statin, which is a decent guess in that it lowers your br- blood pressure. Yeah. Um, but the correct answer was anticoagulant, which is unfortunate because that was Maya's like her her chance to get back into contention. Yeah. You know, she'd been trailing a lot. 
Yeah, if she'd gotten it, she'd be a contender in the game at that point. But Right, right. Uh, and the third Daily Double of the game was in yield E category at $2,000 level. This was, I, I liked this one. Uh, Ryan found it, he wagered 3000 and the clue was, gladiatorial combat may have originated as a funeral custom among these Roman precursors. And Ryan missed the opportunity to say those darn yeah, Etruscans. <laughs> those darn Etruscans. It's Jeopardy, Jeopardy classic. You don't get to answer Etruscans very much. That's okay. He got it right. I would have hit myself on the head if I'd have gotten it. If I'd have gotten that one and gotten it wrong, because I, <laughs> I had, as I was saying it, I had forgotten what the category was. So mm-hmm. I'd forgotten the leading E bit. I don't remember what I thought the answer was, but then he said yeah. it, and I was like, "Oh, duh." Mm-hmm. I bet there was. I bet at least one of the writers was like, "Maybe we can get him to say it." Right. <laughs> so in the final Jeopardy, another close one. Maya's in third place with 2,000. Tom is in second with 18,800. Just 4,000 behind Ryan, who has 22,800. The category was UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And the answer was, known as the female Lawrence of Arabia, Gertrude Bell called this place a fairy tale city, all pink and wonderful. Uh, Maya bet... 2000 and answered what is Jaipur Tom went all in with 18,800 and also said what is Jaipur Ryan was very conservative at 3500 with what is Baghdad and once again his play paid off it was all three got it wrong the correct answer what is Petra yeah Petra crossed my mind but I was like is that really Arabia? I mean, it's in Jordan. I don't know if that counts. And so I really was, I was looking at like, you know, Saudi Arabia. I was like, is it, is it talking about Mecca? Is that, that was, that was where I went. Is that a, is that a thing? I don't know. The pink. And I'm very impressed. I had to look this up that Maya and Tom both put Jaipur because Jaipur is an Indian city and it's known as pink city. Okay. Like the pink city. I, I've never heard that before. And both of them put it. That's, to me, that was very a very impressive poll. Right. And probably felt fairly confident. Right. <laughs> even though India is obviously not Arabia. Right. I was going to say, I mean, that's where I would have... Well, when they, when they said that, I said, oh, Jaipur is India. Why would that be Arabia? But I, I suppose they, they focused on the pink bit. Yep. So we have another triple stumper. So far, through four games this week, one person has gotten any of the final Jeopardies correct. And that was on Tuesday with Holden Caulfield. And that guy wow. didn't even win. <laughs> right. Going into Friday, we have the contestants Wyatt Yankus, a policy analyst from Washington, D.C. Lucia Yang, a medical and doctoral student originally from San Diego, California. And Ryan Long, rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 15-day cash winnings now $279,400. We have the Jeopardy round categories in the world capital. Renaissance art and artists. Phil and the blank. I like that one. I did too. That was a good one. Don't get confused. Apples and oranges. And then I didn't care much for the don't don't get confused category. Yeah, it was words that are similar to other words. Right. Yeah. And I think it confused the contestants a couple times. You know, again, if they're, I feel like if they're missing the two hundred dollar clue change an A to an E to go from immobile to this right stuff, stationary, 
mm-hmm. which is actually a pretty good clue. I think if it's if the category is maybe a little bit more well defined. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I I didn't have any idea what they were talking about. Um, so I think it, that particular clue could perhaps be farther down in the category, even just to establish right. the rule. Right, like the four hundred. And, and I, again, it's ironic because Ryan has been starting on the four hundred dollar clues, but I think where dubbing is the act of conferring knighthood, this is the act of beating severely, which Ryan got correct as drubbing. I feel like that better establishes that you're going to be looking for two words that are the way in which they're similar, although they're all different. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. Right. Was, yeah. That fill category, though, uh, they give you clue and then you have to basically you just give the last name of the fill that they're talking about. Right. So another sweep for Ryan? No. Wyatt got in on 1000 for he put the swoosh in Nike. Mm-hmm. With Phil Knight. How did you do on the old Renaissance art and artists category? Oh, I did pretty well. Although the, the, the there were some triple stumpers, and uh, I'm not surprised. This, the uh, $800 clue, born Jacopo Robusti, this painter of biblical subjects like Susanna and the Elders, had a name meaning Little Dyer. Uh, that's Tintoretto. That's not a name that I would... That I would bring to mind when I'm approached with a Jeopardy category in the Jeopardy round for Renaissance art and artists, right? Mm-hmm. Like the thousand right. dollar clue, I got that one. One of the most famous works of this Venetian master is simply known as La Bella or the Beautiful Woman. That's Titian, notably Venetian, right from Venice. Like a lot of the Renaissance masters were f- were from Florence. Okay. So knowing that Titian is from Venice is kind of a particular thing. But Tintoretto, like that, I don't know. That one seemed really right. obscure to me. Yeah, I completely bageled that category, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. I mean, yeah. Uh, do you want to go to the Daily Double? Yep. So it was the seventh clue of the round by Wyatt in the world capital. In 1791, Mozart conducted the first performance of the Magic Flute in this city. Wyatt wagered 1,000 and won 1,000 when he answered, what is Vienna? Yep. This whole category, I forgot that they were asking for the capital city. So I felt, I always felt unsure of my thought. Like, <laughs> right. like I thought, I was like, was that Vienna? Or did he do it in like Salzburg? Right, right, right. Do it? it's, it's Vienna. It's Vienna. It's a $400 clue. Just right. say Vienna. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, another another close first round. Uh, Lucia's in third place with 600. Wyatt in second place at 4,200. Um, only 400 behind Ryan, who's at 4,600. The category is for Double Jeopardy round. Uh, this will go down in history. A bit of lit. Empaths, M in quotation marks, you know what that means. Calling for a measurement. Super duper supers. And words with fiends. I didn't care for that words with fiends category because really it was just, what are words for like, naughty people yeah i mean in my head i was thinking as i was going through it i fiends i was thinking monsters right Mo- like monsters demons like yeah, y- yeah. that's exactly where i your went vampires and... your werewolves your <laughs> right things that are like but more by definition fiendish rather than just 
you know, the 200 or the $400 clue, you go this fiendish five letter word when you deviate from the expected that they were looking for rogue. I don't, I don't consider going rogue to be a fiendish thing. It's just like, oh, yeah. you're not following the norm. Uh, that <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That it, it seemed like a stretch. Yeah. Uh, what was the, I did, I kind of liked in general, again, similar to the one we mentioned earlier about the A to E might work in a different, category the 2001 there this hyphenated three word synonym for a fiend has an apostrophe for the v in the first word uh, and the answer was a ne'er-do-well you know the comedian gary goldman yes he has i think i think it's part of his do you know his um postal abbreviations bit i don't think i do he has a great four or five minute bit on how they came up with postal abbreviations with as his as he tends to do, just as a bunch of digressions, mm-hmm. part of which is on ne'er do well, and just oh I I do I I air do well, <laughs> I, and it's just again his the way he he layers his jokes and gets to the the ne'er do well I, I I appreciated I, I I thought of that bit when I when I heard that clue and, and mm-hmm. so somewhere in, somewhere that's a good clue. Just not in this weird category. Yeah, did not fit. Did not fit. Um, the first double, daily double on there, came on the first, fourth pick. Gave Ryan a chance to uh, open uh, open up a lead a little bit. Uh, he wagered 3000 It was a $1,200 clue in M Paths. This almost 200-mile trail, named for a famous line, runs through Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware. Ryan got it right in the Mason-Dixon trail. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, this is another one where I forgot about the category. Oh. When I saw Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, just started thinking of the Appalachian Trail. Because mm. mm. I was seeing trail, which obviously is much longer and doesn't fit the M piece of the category. Right. Yeah. Well, hey, it's a good thing you weren't on stage. Right. <laughs> and the third Daily Double is in This Will Go Down in History at the $2,000 level. Pick number 24. So it's pretty late in the round. And uh, let's see, Wyatt finds this one. This is well-timed. He could make a move. Ryan has opened up a lead, and this is when he can try to try to get back into real contention. He wagers 3000 and the clue is, in 1979, the San Francisco Examiner awarded $10,000 to the first person who produced a piece of this, which had just fallen from the sky. And he was trying to figure out what that could be talking about. He guessed what is Halley's Comet, uh, but that was Skylab that fell from the sky. I, in, I couldn't remember Skylab. I was like, did Mir? Did right. Mir go down that early? I don't can think I, it I did. Say, was it Mir? Can I, if you don't mind my asking, how old are you? I'm 33. Yeah, that's what I had a feeling. I, <laughs> I, I, and looking at Wyatt, I was like, oh, he's too young to remember that. But I clearly remember it being a thing that, that a newspaper was looking for money when Skylab came down. Yeah. You know, I was, I was seven at the time. But uh, I do, it's something that, that I definitely remember. Yeah, for sure. Gen okay. X, not Gen Z on that one. <laughs> or millennial yeah, i guess right. i should say millennial probably but that's yeah that's what yeah why i think i would imagine wyatt and i are <laughs> um so at the end of the double jeopardy round with that that miss instead of a get uh ryan is once again in a lock position at nineteen thousand two hundred. lucia's at 4200 wyatt's at 8800 
The final Jeopardy category is technology, and the clue is upon the first use of this in 1844, the Baltimore Sun declared that time and space had been annihilated. Uh, Lucia wrote, what is the steamboat? Uh, but wagered nothing. That's incorrect. Remains at 4,200. Wyatt got it correct with what is the telegraph? And wagered 4,800. Which is an interesting wager. To me, I would have bet basically zero to guarantee my second place. But hmm. Ryan wagered only 800, not risking his lock. And he also got what is the telegraph? So... He finishes up the week as a 16-day champion with $299,400 in winnings. It's a nice amount of money. Yeah. He's, he's been really impressive. Like yes. I said before, he does it, he does it quietly, mm-hmm. but he's, he's just he's running away with them. Yeah. Yeah, he had a number of lock games this week. He's run a lot of categories. And I will say... Had a couple of very lucky uh, final jeopardies, but that's not you know that that's not a knock or anything. You have to be good enough to be able to take advantage of the luck. Right. You got to get yourself in a position to take advantage of the luck. So, right. Uh, all right. So that's the end of the week, and uh, this is the point in the show where I'll quickly do our plug for our Patreon. It is Patreon.com/slash/PotentPotables. You can go there to. Uh, check out a little bit of exclusive content, and by a little bit, I mean a little bit. We don't have not put much up there, uh, but if you want to support us financially, that is where you can do it. You can slide us a few bucks a month just to help us pay for domain fees and, uh, you know, the costs that things cost, if that's something you'd like to do. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables, and uh, again... We do like to take a little bit of time to encourage you to that even if, you know, supporting us is not something you'd like to do, we do encourage you to look into movements and organizations in your community and in the country that are doing good work and can uh, help people out. Very recent weeks, we've had a lot more need, and it seems like our list on the show notes keeps getting longer. You know, we always talk about communityjusticeexchange.org, the Stop Asian Hate GoFundMe rescue.org we've been mentioning since the beginning of the ukraine war and uh more recently with the school shootings uh i believe we mentioned the sandy hook project last week and i put in the show notes last week but i'll also mention again uh the uh, rebels project uh, which one of my colleagues at the school that i teach at who is a columbine survivor she works with and they do very good work going to communities where mass shootings happen so All of those are good places, and chances are you could find something else that also does good work. There are a lot of good people doing a lot of good work out there, and we encourage you to look into that. So after that very heavy thing, (laughs) we're uh, going to move on. So obviously we have a guest host this week, so we're going to uh, change it up a little bit. I am going to do a deep dive. It might not be that deep, but I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about the... Battle of Trafalgar, which was one of the Final Jeopardy triple stumpers. And then after that, Adam is going to do a quiz on Sidney Poitier, which was also a Final Jeopardy triple stumper. It is rare that we have more than one in a week. Uh, we had three to choose from. <laughs> I, after I, you know, after I decided to talk about Trafalgar and then, you know, I watched an episode where 
Petra was also a Final Jeopardy triple star. I was like, oh man, I could talk about Petra. That would also be a good, oh, which one? Well, I'm going to talk about the Battle of Trafalgar. So here we go. I'm going to give a little bit of background. Uh, I'm going to do an overview of like the battle. You don't need a lot of the like naval combat specifics because it's not really, you know, particularly important to know exactly what angle each line is sailing at, but a little bit of the historical significance of it. Um, So the Battle of Trafalgar occurred on the 21st of October, 1805. It was a naval engagement between the British Royal Navy and the uh, combined fleets of uh, France and Spain. And so this was during part during a part of the um, Napoleonic Wars, which lasted for like 13 years, from like 1803 to 1815. So that just knowing it was Napoleonic is not really specific enough. This era of the Napoleonic Wars was uh, known as the War of the Third Coalition. It's the Third Coalition because it was France and its client states under uh, Emperor Napoleon against the Third Coalition, which was uh, made up of the United Kingdom, the Holy Roman Empire, Russian Empire, Naples, Sicily, and Sweden. This was, like I said, the the Third Coalition. There had been other coalitions before, uh, and there would be other ones afterward uh, as well. The, the thing that kind of like kind of made this battle happen was that Napoleon had plans to invade England, as pretty much everybody does who wants to take over Europe, right? You gotta you gotta invade England. How do you do that? You gotta cross the channel. The Spanish tried it back in 1588 with the Armada, didn't work. Napoleon also wanted to do that. There's um a, a stark difference between the French fleet and the English fleet at this time. Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. One, the English fleet had been blockading France and its uh, client states for years at this point, which meant that the uh, English sailors had a lot of experience. They'd been on the sea. They'd been working on the ships. They'd been practicing gunnery. They'd been doing all of the things. And they were they were experienced uh, you know, military sailors. Whereas the French fleet, because they'd been blockaded by the, by the English, most of their sailors didn't really have experience on the sea. And even when they could sneak out and get on the water, they definitely didn't practice gunnery because that would draw attention to them. So the the French fleet was severely uh, undermanned in terms of experience. The other thing was the leadership of the French Navy had been kind of gutted by the French Revolution because a lot of the leaders were also rich people <laughs> who liked, liked the royalty and they either got the axe or they just kind of like stepped away and kept themselves from getting killed. Uh, so the leadership of the French Navy was actually not very good and not very experienced uh, like it had been, you know, some 20 years prior, even 15 years prior. So even though, even though the French uh, Navy had good numbers, the British Navy had the experience and and the know-how. So in early 1805, uh, Vice Admiral Lord Nelson, Horatio Nelson, who is like the hero of the story, he had been commanded to the British fleet blocking Toulon, or blockading Toulon, and he uh, he adopted a loose blockade to try to lure the French out for a major battle. He was quoted as saying, To be able to get at the enemy, you must let them come to you if you cannot get at them. However, during a storm, Villeneuve, the uh, Vice Admiral Pierre Charles Villeneuve from the Clue, he was able to sneak his fleet out of Toulon uh, while the British were kind of regrouping after the storm. Nelson commenced commenced a search of the Mediterranean, thinking that they were headed for Egypt because uh, 
Egypt was a major theater in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, but instead, Villeneuve took his fleet through the Strait of Gibraltar and uh, rendezvoused with the Spanish fleet at Cadiz, and they planned to sail for the Caribbean, which they did. So they, they sailed across the Atlantic. It was Napoleon's plan for them to go across the Atlantic, supply up, gather their forces, and then come back to try to take the English Channel uh, so they could move the Grand Armée across and, and invade England. There is a lot of, like reconnaissance done and the english ships were just faster and so they were able to communicate better and also villeneuve was not super keen on engaging in battle so he was trying to avoid it but basically by the time we get to august of 1805 there are about 20 english ships blockading cadiz where the combined french and spanish fleet is in harbor admiral nelson arrived on the 28th of September and took command. At this point, both of the fleets needed provisioning pretty badly. So on the 2nd of October, five ships of the line from England were dispatched to Gibraltar. And uh, the French kind of hearing of this, hearing that some of the, the, the ships had gone off the other way, Villeneuve decided that it was time for them to move. Also on the 16th of September, Napoleon had given orders that they put to sea at the first favorable opportunity to try to get to Naples and then engage the British. On the 21st of October, Admiral Nelson had 27 ships of the line. They're called ships of the line just a little bit uh, about this, not just because that's a fancy British way of saying things, but because that's how they fought naval battles at that time was in a line. The idea was you get all of your ships, you line up, and then you broadside each other until one sustains enough damage that they turn and there was uh there are a couple of advantages to that one it was easier to communicate if the ships were in a line because you could have your flagship send communication down and it was easily seen and the other was from a defensive standpoint if you are taking losses you can break formation and start to run away and the only way that the that your opponent can get you is if they also break formation to chase so it's not really good for the attacker to break the formation which actually resulted in a lot of uh, inconclusive battles at sea because if both of them line up and then one kind of runs away after sustaining some damage, no ships are lost. There's not really like a, a major decision made. Anyway, Nelson had 27 ships of the line. His flagship was the HMS Victory, and he was leading from there. The uh, Franco-Spanish fleet had 33 ships of the line, and uh, it had the largest, uh, some of the largest ships in the world including the Spanish flagship, the Santissima Trinidad, which had 130 guns. It's just a massive ship. So Nelson planned, he, he's like touted as having this kind of like unorthodox strategy that, that won the day. Although in reality, this had been done before. And Villeneuve even actually thought that Nelson might try it if it came to it. His plan was to take the, uh, the British fleet and instead of you know, making one line and, and going across to broadside. The other was to take it and make two columns that would go into the enemy line, break it into three parts, and then engage ships, like ship to ship, in a way that wasn't really done all that much at the time. Uh, because Nelson knew that his crews were more experienced, they had the morale uh, on their side, and he knew that if it worked, it would you know, cut off the flagship from the rest of the line. So the line would have to reorganize and it would buy them time and they'd be able to capture or sink enough ships on the rear side of the line before 
the vanguard could you know come around and, and begin opening fire the risk there is that as the as you are going into the enemy line your lead ships are just going to be taking heavy fire that you can't return so if it works it'll work really well if it doesn't work you're just like running your lead sh- your flagships into enemy fire for no reason so that's what ended up happening on the 21st of october at 5 40 a.m nelson gave the order to prepare for battle because the previous day villeneuve had got his fleet organized and they set sail from three columns or in three columns for the strait of gibraltar from cadiz at 8 a.m villeneuve ordered the fleet to wear together turn about and return to cadiz the wind became contrary at this point often shifting direction and because of that the inexperienced crews of the french ships had trouble and it took nearly an hour and a half for them to simply turn around but at this point they were they formed just an uneven angular crescent and they were kind of out of like out of order by 11 a.m nelson's entire fleet was visible to villeneuve and uh he was concerned about forming up in a line because they were unevenly spaced like i said and at noon like the like the uh, jeopardy clue said villeneuve gave the order to engage the enemy Nelson's plan worked pretty much as he said. Uh, The two British columns broke into the enemy lines. Uh, They were able to cut off Villeneuve's flagship, uh, the, I'm so bad at French, the Britico, as well as a couple of other uh, major ships. And uh, they were able to capture most of the French and Spanish ships within a matter of hours. Uh, The Vanguard had tried to turn and engage after they got cut off. Uh, but when it became apparent that the battle was swiftly going not their way, the commander at the head of the, the French vanguard decided to retreat. And so the this Battle of Trafalgar, the reason it's the Battle of Trafalgar is because it's near Cape Trafalgar in Spain, was a major, major victory for the British Navy. There were only five French ships that survived the attack after the, you know, 33 that, that sailed. Now, many of those ships were captured which meant that British crews took over the ship and they like tied ropes to take them home. They're prize ships, right? They're, they're, they're considered prize. However, the following week, due to bad weather and uprisings from the captured crews, most of those prize ships were lost to the British. And in fact, most of those prize ships ended up being either scuttled or sunk or run aground Rather than being able to return, the British only managed to take back three ships, one French and two Spanish ships back to Britain. Uh, All the rest were just like pretty much lost. So there were just a ton of shipwrecks along the coast. So this was a massive victory for the, the British, even though they didn't have all of the prize ships that they brought back. And there was it was a hard week afterward, a major victory. And after that, Napoleon and the French Empire had no real naval power however by 1814 at the end of napoleon's reign in the battle of waterloo or 1815 he had mobilized the various parts of europe that he had conquered and was en route to having potentially 150 ships of the line be able to you know take to sea and challenge britain again so even though the the naval victory was huge the next almost 10 years were french victories for the most part in fact Less than two months after Trafalgar, Napoleon decisively defeated the Third Coalition at the Battle of Austerlitz, which knocked Austria out of the war and forced the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire. It's a massive, massive win there for Napoleon. 
but Trafalgar was important for especially British morale. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lord Nelson was killed in the Battle of Trafalgar. As I mentioned, when the ships were moving toward the enemy line, the, the lead ships would take a lot of enemy fire. Nelson was on the HMS Victory, and that was the ship in the front. And as they approached and as they broke the line, he took a, uh, a bullet through his torso, through his spine, and lodged behind his shoulder. Uh, and he died that day. He, he died just a few hours after the battle ended. Villeneuve was captured aboard his flagship and taken to Britain. He was paroled in 1806, he returned to France, and he was found dead in his room uh, in an inn on the way to Paris with six stab wounds in the chest, and it was officially recorded that he had committed suicide. <laughs> probably not. First five didn't get him, it took, the, took number six. Yeah, yeah probably that, <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, that's what happened. Napoleon actually had really strict control over the media in France, and reports of the Battle of Trafalgar in newspapers claimed that they were a resounding victory for the French Empire, hmm. which was not true. But uh, it's entirely likely that Napoleon had him killed. So that's like the Battle of Trafalgar. That's, you know, Lord Nelson. Uh, there are lots of monuments to Horatio Nelson. The most most famous one, of course, is Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square in London. It's named Trafalgar Square because of the Battle of Trafalgar for Lord Nelson. But there are a lot of other uh, uh, monuments throughout the United Kingdom. Trafalgar feels like such a British word, and yet it's a place in Spain. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. It does sound very British. And it, it just I think it's just so in our minds is like, oh, Trafalgar Square is in London. Of course it is. I'm not going to tell you about everything else that's related to it. Uh, we, it. It comes up all the time in, you know, novels about the Napoleonic Wars, movies about the Napoleon, like the Battle of Trafalgar is the big naval battle in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and Horatio Nelson has that place in history and, and as a, a British military hero. So there we go. That's the Battle of Trafalgar. Cool. All right. That's my piece. All right. Tell me about Sidney Poitier. Have me, ask me questions. I will ask you questions. So the assignment of points feels, seems a little bit random. So I didn't really, sure. I really, I kind of skipped the, the point assignments. Okay. Just, uh, just go straight up six, six questions. Tried to vary them a little bit. We'll, uh, we'll see how we did here. Okay. So uh, Sidney Poitier was a dual citizen of the United States and what other nation? It was a British colony at the time of his birth. He gained independence in 1973. And later in life, Poitier served as this country's ambassador to Japan from 1997 to 2007. Gained independence in 1973? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so I'm going to guess. I mean, I, I would... It's possible that I have the the independence bit, yeah, not quite, the terminology there, not quite correct. That's okay. I, I, I'm drawing blanks on this. So I'm going to say the Virgin Islands. I have, I have no idea. Close. The Bahamas. The Bahamas. So sort of the, the interesting note to try and go a little bit deeper. He was born in Miami while mm -hmm. prematurely while his parents were on a trip from the Bahamas. So that's oh, okay. why he's a dual citizen of both countries because complete fluke of... Uh, of, of timing. He just happened to be born here. Yeah, That's exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. That, and it's funny because it felt like one of the first pieces of on, on the Wikipedia is a Baham Bahamian American actor, mm -hmm. which 
would not have would not have realized until no until I never that. would have thought yeah that. yeah question two in 1963 Sidney Poitier became the first black man to win an Academy Award but not the first black person who was the first black Academy Award winner and for what role did she win best supporting actress I can supply you with the year if that will help it might I don't know that I'm gonna get the role I have a name in mind but I don't know that I'm gonna get the role but the year was 1939. Okay, what? Oh, what was her name? I I think I. I want to say. Uh, I always <laughs> I always get this like I have a name and I'm like, is this the person I'm thinking of? Because I'm thinking of the person uh, from Gone with the Wind, uh, and I think her name was Hattie McDaniel. That's right. Okay, and I don't know the the name of the role. I do not know the name of the role. I feel like it, it's it's sort of your. Typical uh, black maid name, Mammy. Mammy, okay. <laughs> all right, all right, yeah. Whew, okay. I-, I feel okay about that. I remembered Hattie McDaniel, at least. I have a, I have a sort of a bonus follow-up then. He was, Portier was the first nominate, was first nominated for an Oscar in 1958 for The Defiant One, but he was not the first black person nominated as a lead performer. Who was nominated in 1954 for her role as the title character in Carmen Jones. Ooh. That was Carmen Jones. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to come up with a name. That was Dorothy Dandridge. Dorothy Dandridge. Okay. These are names that I have heard. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, sort of Hattie McDaniel is, is best known f- uh, for her role as, as Mammy and Gone with the Wind. I, you know, I should probably know a little bit more about her. Dorothy Dandridge was certainly a more well-known sort of uh, lounge singer type in, in Europe as well before her, her role there. One of Sidney Poitier's best-known roles came in 1967's In the Heat of the Night. While his performance as a cop from Philadelphia did not garner one of, him one of the film's seven Academy Award nominations, it did land Poitier a spot on the American Film Institute's 2005 list of 100 years, 100 movie quotes with what five-word phrase that was also the name of a 1970 sequel to In the Heat of the Night. Oh, man. <laughs> I watched this movie when I was like 12. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, and I bet I know the quote. Okay, what is it? So it's his response to being... Yeah, it's... Is it... Is it they call me Mr. Tibbs? That's right. Is that the line? Okay. Whoo! Yes. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was Bye. that's a, a good poll there. Thanks. My mom studied film in college a little okay. bit with Roger Ebert. She would be slapping me right now <laughs> right. missing these clips. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably I mean that and just sort of knowing that he played opposite Rod Steiger is about the only about the only things I could really have told you about the movie prior to looking it up for sure. to, to write this. Number four. Among the nine featured films directed by Sidney Poitier was Stir Crazy, the second of three collaborations between what comedic pairing? They also starred in Silver Streak and See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Oh, man. Oh, man. Silver Streak. Unless I'm thinking of Silver Streak as an entirely different thing, which I... I don't think I am. Is it Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder? It is. Yes! Ooh! Ooh! 
those were three movies that were sort of heavy rotation for for me growing up on the HBO okay. cable. <laughs> okay. So especially my my favorite was See No Evil, Hear No Evil, where Pryor is blind and Gene Wilder is deaf, and they help each other get through a series of of crazy antics. I had not realized a that that Sidney Poitier was a had done much directing and be that it, most of his films were, were comedies. Yeah. That, that does not feel like Sidney Poitier kind of right. stuff, right? Yeah. You know, but then again, looking further, stir crazy, according to New York times, stir crazy marked the first time a film directed by an African American earned more than a hundred million dollars. And Richard Pryor became the first black actor to earn a million dollars for a single, single film with wow. that. Nice. So, a significant milestone for, I don't know what feel what is a film that's in generally is, is is kind of lost lost in time. I would say, yeah, not not one of your your usual classics, right? I feel like see, some of the when you see clip shows of, of slapstick, you'll see some some see no evil, hear no evil moments just because mm-hmm. of the the nature of, of what those two guys were doing. But uh, number five, John Stewart with an H isn't the former host of The Daily Show, but a superhero alter ego whose visual inspiration is said to have been based on Sidney Poitier. Others who have worn this character's mantle have been Hal Jordan, Kyle Rayner, Guy Gardner, and Jessica Cruz. Name the superhero. Oh, that would be the Green Lantern. Yes. John Stewart is the best Green Lantern. Yes. I, I was just saying, I, I, I won't disagree with that at <laughs> all. In my period of collecting I, the 90s, Justice League with uh, with Guide Gardner as the main Green Lantern. Enter- I, I felt I, I found entertaining, but that was mm-hmm. definitely a stab at, at more humorous, lighthearted comic book yeah. telling. John Stewart is much more serious. Yes, and number six, uh, one of the first leading film roles of a future Oscar winner came in a 1993 adaptation of a 1990 Pulitzer Prize-winning play by John Guare. Based on a real story, the actor portrayed David, a con man who purported to be Sidney Poitier's son, in order to ingratiate himself into rich Manhattan families. Name the play slash film and the actor. Uh, let's see. 1993. I was four, so I don't remember. <laughs> don't remember this coming out uh i don't think i'm going to be able to pull anything if on it this. helps the the play slash film went on to introduce a popular uh parlor game into the vernacular as well in 1990 i yeah i'm gonna tap on this one i don't i have no idea so the actor is will smith mm. and the play slash film was six degrees of separation oh which sort of led to the six degrees of kevin bacon yeah 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 right and he gives you know again at that point he's he's best known as the fresh prince of bel-air yeah so this is a, this is a very serious turn in terms of acting and uh you know he sort of showed the charisma i think that that made him a leading man the i learned the Academy Award nomination that that for acting that that film did garner was for Stockard Channing 
for lead actress. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I did not know that. I I now have context for that because I knew that like I know six degrees of separation. I knew it was a movie, and that was about as much as I knew. Right. So now, good. Nice. I think I think I've seen the play as well, but uh, yeah, but but yeah, if you I don't know where it might be streaming, but Will Smith's or how you feel in general about Will Smith these days, but his <laughs> his performance in that is 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 really is like I said for someone who's best known at, at that point as the Fresh Prince of Bel Air was really was really something nice cool yeah i will probably check that out that is my look into sydney poitier all right well thank you that certainly all i mean even just through through six questions uh gave me a lot more than i knew or at least reminded me of stuff that i mostly forgotten so thank you and thank you for joining me my pleasure it was fun kyle yeah it was it was fun having you and it's good talking to you about you know your experience on jeopardy and and you know, getting your insight on some things. And yeah, so thank you. And uh, thank you listeners for spending your time with us. We really appreciate it. If you wouldn't mind, go ahead and, uh, you know, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could write us a review, that would be great. Uh, you can check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potent And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, you can let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. And we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy episodes and a deep dive in quiz. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.